Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 19th of September 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border, and also Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. Uh, David, let's get straight on. Of course, uh, the only thing that's happening in the UK today is uh, the funeral of the Queen. Yes, first state funeral since Churchill. Uh, the uh, coffin was carried out by the guards. The um, the uh, men from the Royal Navy uh, pulled the gun carriage down the road and the mass pipes and drums played uh, Miss Covered Mountains. And it was uh, a, a, a moment um, to, to remember and that the country can um, certainly uh, carry off these events in the way that few can. And uh, the uh, ceremony uh, continues and it will culminate in a very simple Christian funeral service uh, later today. Okay, but uh, in, over the weekend then there were lots of people uh, wanting to go and see. Yes, I felt I should comment on this because I think this is actually quite a significant moment. So here we see the Guardian reporting uh, the phenomenon of the queue, as it's become known. It's attracted fascination, confusion and awe around Britain and across the world. Who would be willing to wait for hours, uh, for as long as 24 hours outdoors, braving the elements along the Thames for a few seconds alongside the Queen's coffin? And why? They had this tea in the cold and visit from the King, the people waiting all night to see the Queen. Now, um, the point I want to make here is that all of the leftist organs, you know, the independent and various um, leftist commentators are going mental about this. And it's it struck me as somewhat surprising, and I was thinking about why this is. And I put it to you that I think the answer is that they they have a philosophy that is all about grievance, it's all about whining, it's all about um, constant um, uh, angst, and um, and all, it's also all about control. And here what we see in the part of the British people is a spontaneous, they won't like that, um, decision to... Uh, proceed with dignity, and they don't like that either. Quiet dignity, I think, uh, they find confusing and alarming. So I I think this is another example of uh, the British people's reaction to the Queen's passing being quite a significant moment for them. David, I think that's a very interesting point. Um, for me, over the weekend, I was trying to pick up the feeling of people around me, and something that I... Um, I felt maybe it was just me, but it was like people was, were trying to grab hold of something that was, uh, yeah, bringing them together, but also um, it, was, it was some calm. And I know this might be considered a strange event to label as calm, but it was almost like people were grabbing hold of something because, of course, they live in a world of increasingly orchestrated chaos and turmoil. Exactly so. It's a, it's a culture, what we're seeing here is a culture of dignity and calm reasserting itself over the culture of victimhood and collapse and, and essentially panic that we've been told repeatedly for, well, certainly the last two and a half years and really for several decades that we're meant to be living in constantly. Mm. Yeah. Well, I picked up on this um, tremendous picture from The Times with the headline, Charles Gives Thanks. Uh, the King says he's deeply touched by public support. Um, 
and uh, this, they had this tremendous picture. Now, what was interesting about the picture is it's the uh, Buckingham Palace 1844 room. And of course, there's the lovely Liz uh, Truss. I looked at them and I looked at the colours. Well, obviously, we might expect sombre colours, but it was something to do with Liz Truss. And um, I, it's a stance, awkward. We might say it's awkward. And then I thought to myself, when you, when you see you know, a black bird strutting around on the ground. And it's, I don't know, very strange posture, very uncomfortable. It reminds uh, me of Theresa May in many ways. But my thoughts about that room, Brian, are that they, have they chosen that room because the main colours are blue and yellow? <laughs> well, possibly. Uh, that's a very good point. But uh, I'm going to thank Unusually Vogue for coming up with some information I didn't know because Vogue said that this is called the 1844 room. Uh, because the year 1844, that's when the space received Russian Tsar Nicholas I, a guest so grand that his portrait once hung on its walls. Uh, so presumably we don't want anything Russian in the 1844 room, although it was uh, apparently created for that very purpose. Well, indeed. Indeed. Well, look, let's uh, let's move on. And uh, well, after this, immediately after the uh, funeral ends, Theresa May will... Uh, sorry, Freudian slip there, Liz Truss will be heading onto a flight over to New York uh, for the United Nations General Assembly. So I just wanted to sort of give people a flavour of what most the most recent prime ministers of the UK uh, have been uh, saying at the United Nations General Assembly. So let's uh, have a look at David Cameron. We're back in 2014 uh, when in his uh, speech to the UNGA, he said basically, and I'm paraphrasing, we've got a sense of the internet. Uh, Theresa May then in 2018, she said uh, counter disinformation globally uh, with the rapid response, sorry, counter disinformation globally with the rapid response mechanism. Uh, and that, of course, is the notion that she sold to the G7 in June of that year, uh, that there would be a common narrative across all the G7 countries uh, for just about every policy area going. Um, then in uh, 2019, uh, of course, Theresa May was gone. Boris Johnson was prime minister and his speech was all about those damned anti-vaxxers uh, at a time before COVID and before, uh, you know, vaccine ac uh, activity, uh, anti-vaccine activity was really a thing. I mean, there was there were plenty of people campaigning, but it wasn't become it wasn't sort of at the forefront of the minds of politicians or or the media at the time. So it was very strange that he brought that particular issue up six months before uh, the COVID lockdowns and so on. Um, and, uh, well, what's Liz Truss going to be bringing to the United Nations General Assembly? Well, it's going to be damn Putin and she. Um, and this is very much the message. And in fact, uh, the, an attempt now to, from Biden, at least, to, to encourage Xi to, to uh, separate himself from Putin and sort of isolate Russia. But that's not going to happen. But nonetheless, this is very much the message uh, that uh, Liz Truss is going to be taking to the United Nations General Assembly. Um, so, David, have you got any thoughts on that briefly? Well, it's just striking how how much lies our prime ministers have told when they went to the uh, UN General Assembly, when you see it with a little bit of historical perspective and more on that later in the news. Um, but sticking with uh, globalist institutions and globalist messages, then uh, we head to Scotland. And, well, what's Nippy been up to? Nippy's, Nippy's been on a job advert job interview with the Rockefeller Foundation. So she's went along to a gathering with um, 
essentially the B team, all the people who won't be invited to the UN General Assembly, in, including uh, Hillary Clinton, no less, um, because apparently we are overdue for equity. Equity, we're told, uh, is not just for women, but for democracy, for climate and for effective decision-making, we're overdue for equity. Are you inspired, gentlemen? Uh, so this has all been organised by the Rockefeller Foundation, who have convened a group of distinguished, distinguished by the way, women, uh, to uh, discuss these matters. And we have a little clip, if you can stand it, of Nicola having a few words. A long way to go uh, towards gender equity, but the progress we have made is fragile. And if we don't safeguard it, nurture it, and continue to build upon it, there is a real danger, in my view, in the years to come that it could go backwards. I'm Nicola Sturgeon, I'm the First Minister of Scotland. I think if more women are in leadership positions, that acts as a catalyst for change elsewhere. And there's a wealth of evidence that whether we look at governments or the boards of companies or other organisations, if there is greater gender equity in the representation on these bodies, then decision making is more inclusive and better. If you look at climate change, women disproportionately are on the front line in climate change, particularly in the Global South, women have uh, child caring responsibilities disproportionately, have the responsibility to uh, get food for their, their families, uh, work in agriculture. And these are uh, the, the women that are impacted by climate change right now. Equally, uh, women will be on the front line of implementing the solutions to climate change. So if we can better involve women in those decisions, then the outcomes are going to be better, better represent what is needed and be more sustainable as a, a result. Other thing I would say though is, it's not enough in and of itself to have women in positions of leadership. I think there is much more to be done to support women in those positions and to continue to tackle and challenge some of the barriers that women, even at the highest levels of decision-making, still face. Women uh, have been fighting these battles for generations. We have made progress, but sometimes it feels as if we take one step forward and two steps back. So we need to keep powering on uh, to achieve equity because we are most definitely overdue for equity. I'm confused. David, how does that work with uh, the trans agenda? Oh, <laughs> we'll come to that. Right, so we need equity. Okay, equity is key. I would point out that at no time uh, have I or the UK column ever accused Nicola Sturgeon of taking one step forward. We've never said that. But anyway, she thinks that uh, that was perhaps something that might have happened. Um, so Apart from photo shooting, this has been pretty light on substance. So we see her here having another another photograph taken with uh, with Hilde. And I have to say, Nicola Beige isn't your colour. The, 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 some of the other women, this, this African lady standing next to her, has absolutely won the war of the fashion. It's fantastic. Nicola, not so much, but never mind. So this has all been done to launch a very light paper with very little information uh, called Global Leaders call for urgent action on gender equity. Um, and they've got this uh, quite shouty lady on the front. Now, this shouty lady is actually a Muslim lady in Kashmir 
um, protesting against Indian control of Kashmir. So this is this protest is nothing to do with gender issues. It's to do with geopolitics. So when there's a lie on the cover, you're thinking, well, this is quite strange. We've got a we've got a quote from Hillary. Uh, we live in a watershed moment, she says. Seldom has the world more urgently needed gender equality, and it's up to us to demand it. So this this whole idea of demanding. Um, constant whining and 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 and, and complaining about this, the, the system. This is part of kind of cultural Marxism. This is what Hillary comes from, and um, we've got more of this to come. David, if so, I can... to see those. Sorry, sorry, Brian. David, just very quickly, I noticed that Hillary Clinton says gender equality, whereas the start was gender equity, and uh, subtle what... differences are often important. So, what, what's your take on the change of language? Well spotted, Brian. Yes, equity and equality are not the same at all. And we'll come to exactly the difference, but notice Nicola says equity because Nicola's right on. Um, the, the Hillary's probably forgotten the line. She's talking about a line from 10 years ago. Um, we, we have here um, a, a little piece which is essentially expanding on what Nicola was talking about, supporting women's leadership amidst pushback. I wonder why there could be pushback. Um, it says democracy is under attack. By democracy, they generally mean kind of global communism. But still, democracy is under attack globally with serious implications for gender equity. So it's, it's equity. That's, that's, that's the word that everyone else is using in this document. Uh, from Turkey to Poland, I, uh, Iran to Myanmar, Afghanistan to Egypt, and most recently Ukraine, women are on the front lines defending against a simultaneous assault, simultaneous assault on women's rights and democratic values. Now, th this is also interesting because the one thing that's not happening in the Ukraine is women being on the front lines because the women, there's women all around Scotland where I am from the Ukraine because they've left the Ukraine and the men weren't allowed to leave because the men had to go and be in the front lines. So again, this isn't being honest. It continues, women's political participation and power threatens authoritarian governments who view women's leadership as tilting a zero-sum game of power politics. It's all about power. Speaking from Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon's government was the most totalitarian I have ever lived under. Um, the idea that women's political leadership ends totalitarianism is fanciful. Whether it makes it worse or whether it's just all part of the same general theme, I'm not so sure. Um, we then get to the question that Brian raised, which is what does equity mean? So there's a there's a, a very good website called New Discourses. They have a they have a lexicon of social justice warrior terms so you can actually find out what the words mean. Right? And here they say equity is often conflated with the term equality, which means sameness and assumes incorrectly uh, that we will all have equal access, treatment and outcomes. <laughs> in fact, true equity implies that an individual may need to experience or receive something different, not equal, in order to maintain fairness and access. Right. So equity isn't equality. Equity is being the, someone in the state deciding to basically harm you or discriminate against you for the greater good. That's what equity means. Um, and the New Discourses continues. So it often is uh, sought under a suite called Diversity, Equity and Inclusion, DEI. Anyone who's involved in any UK major organisation will be familiar with this. 
Uh, and it also says, in early 2020, and rather shockingly, in the Washington State Legislature, legislature uh, an, equ an equity task force was assembled that offered the following definition for equity. Equity equals disrupt and dismantle. What do you think of that, Brian? Uh, well, I, I think oh. thank you, because, of course, for me, that, that completely fills in the missing uh, objective, which is you talk peace, reconciliation, togetherness, but actually you're working under the surface in order to break it down. Uh, I wonder whether I wonder whether Mark Anderson's got any comments there, as you're mentioning the illustrious Hillary Clinton. Yes, I do. Uh, something we'll talk about a little later, the United We Stand Summit that Joe Biden held September 15th, uh, pushes a lot of the same buttons. The normal definition of equity is like an insurance policy. The premium you pay and the benefit you get are equitable or fair, and they make sense. So they're taking an existing concept and twisting it. And how Orwellian can you get that it would actually mean something that you break down? Or, or the breaking down or the dismantling or the disruption of normal society. Uh, and then they accuse others of being disruptors. Again, projection, accusing others what they're guilty of. How many times do we have to see it? Absolutely. I, I, and just to fill in a little detail, just to fill in a little detail there, we go to the actual post in the 2020 Office of Equity Task Force. This is from Washington State. Uh, it's titled Disrupt and Dismantle Systems of Institutional Racism and Oppression, Eliminating Racism, and it makes everything about race, and oppression requires revolutionary change. This is from the American state, state uh, legislature. Uh, the Office of Equity's work must be transformative. It must disrupt and dismantle historical systems of institutional racism and oppression throughout every sector and layer of government. Agents, agencies must systematically identify the harm and exclusions built into our current systems and take immediate action to undo these inequities. Um, so there we go. We're going to disrupt and we are going to dismantle and we are going to do it everywhere. And of course, the great irony, as, as, um, as Mike this alluded to earlier on, is all of this has been done in the name of equity for women. Meanwhile, in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon refuses to define what a woman is. Um, she described herself as a feminist to my fingertips, but said to define what a woman is would oversimplify the debate on transgender rights. So equity for women is essential, she says, but she can't tell us what a woman is. Mm. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? To do the UK column news becomes ever more difficult as the, these, this terminology gets bandied around. Well, what's the connection between all of that and how many fighters does the RAF have? It wasn't until this morning that I began to understand the, the true significance. So this was the little question in my head, um, and it had come up simply because somebody casually mentioned to me it was very difficult to find out actually how big the Royal Air Force was. And if you went to their um, in, uh, website, it was rather confusing. So let's just give you a little glimpse. The whole of the Royal Air Force website has been really well designed for probably a seven or eight year old boy in the first instance. So there's lots of colorful graphics. Uh, you can click on buttons and you'll get information, but none of the information is down to the 
baseline of how many aircraft they've got and what the real capabilities are. So um, this is one, one selection of a page where you can spin a globe. Yes, as you, as, you, as you click on the globe, you can spin it. You can then choose a dot and click on it. And when you click on the dot, it will give you some embedded information. So I clicked there in the Middle East and up came Exercise Lightning Dawn. Well, it's Cyprus, actually. First overseas exercise for the new Lightning aircraft for the RAF and Royal Navy to gain vital experience in maintaining and flying the aircraft in an unfamiliar environment. That was all very good, but I couldn't find out how many there were. No, it does amuse me, though, the word maintaining comes first. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but uh, don't worry, because um, if they're having trouble with the aircraft, um, they're protecting us in space. So there were a lot of dots off the globe, and that confused me initially until I realised that we were actually defending the whole of the universe. So we've got UK Space Command, UK and worldwide, and uh, UK Space Command personnel monitor space 24-7, 365 days a year to protect the UK's interests in space. So that made me feel much happier until I discovered another key page on the RAF website was this, health and well-being. And uh, some of the small print is a little bit difficult to see. So let's have a look at what it says. During the coronavirus lockdown, keeping our physical and mental fitness levels up has never been more important. We've collated a range of tools and resources to support you during this time. Keep checking back for further updates. So according to the RAF, they are still very much fighting in an environment of coronavirus lockdown. I don't know how many other people might say, but I thought we were out of that, but no, they're defending us in space and they're defending against the virus. Uh, but um, let's have a look at uh, this in a bit more detail, because what they do is recommend a great number of organisations for personnel, RAF personnel, to go to in order to keep um, themselves mentally fit. And this leads me to ask, is there a major mental health problem in the RAF? If there is, then I think we need to be concerned about it. But I decided just to look a little bit deeper and headspace I found particularly interesting. It said the Headspace app provides guidelines on mindfulness, meditation, sleep, and more. Serving RAF personnel can get free membership to the Headspace app. Does this make you feel confident about the uh, people defending the universe and the skies, Mike? No. No. Well, here's the app. Be kind to your mind. And this is the exact page that comes up when you click from the RAF website. And of course, somebody's trying to sell you something straight away. Who's doing it? Well, here it is about Headspace. And if we have a look at that in a bit more detail, Headspace was started with one mission to improve the health and happiness of the world. It's not much of a success then. Well, it's interesting stuff, isn't it? So who, who is all this? Who's doing all this? Um, well, if you dig in a little bit deeper, you come to Headspace Health. It's democratizing mental health care around the world. It's part of Headspace Health, the world's most accessible comprehensive provider of mental health and well-being care. And it says that Headspace Health also consists of Headspace for Work and Ginger, who partner with over 2,500 companies and health plans to provide access to meditation, mindfulness, coaching, therapy, psychiatry to their members and employees, 
Partners include Starbucks, Adobe, Delta Airlines, Viacom, CBS, Cigna, and Kaiser Permanente. And the RAF. Well, and the RAF. So um, we're in good hands in the RAF because they're working with Starbucks on mindfulness. Um, so who is the RAF relying on? Well, these are the, the prime teachers on the site. You can have a look at their experience. It doesn't seem to me to be world class. But if we bring Sam in, we start to get a clue because it says Sam is a certified mindfulness facilitator and program leader focused on youth empowerment and education. Now, suddenly we've gone from mental health to uh, empowerment and education of youth. And we wonder what the direction for that is going to be. Stay with us. Now, this is quite some organization. It's apparently in 190 countries around the world. 70 million members, 600,000 reviews. So what sort of people would be behind this? Well, we can have a look at their, uh, their core team. And a couple of these caught my eye. So Michael Strutmanis, Executive Vice President, Civic Engagement, Obama Foundation. Um, uh, Mark, I hope you're paying attention to this because I shall come over to you in a minute. So we've gone from mental health to community and civic engagement and now we're through to the Obama Foundation but of course what other sort of people do you want in healthcare? Well you need hedge funds so here we've got Ram Jagannath Senior Managing Director of Blackstone and uh, if you do your uh, research on the Blackstone organisation you'll find that it's into some pretty powerful and big money uh, stuff which is about principally making profit. But here's the Obama Foundation, and our mission is to inspire, empower, and connect people around the world. And it says that it's uh, creating leaders and cohorts of change makers. Does that make it common purpose for the states? Well, this is exactly what I'm seeing. I am seeing the fact that we have people buried in society, changing everything, making a new model of the future. But it's uh, very interesting to see that the REF is connected through to this. Let's have a little look at uh, Obama uh, boasting at his latest building site. This day has been a long time coming. We are about to break ground on what will be the world's premier institution for developing civic leaders across fields, across disciplines, and yes, across the political spectrum. The substantial investment in the South Side will help make the neighborhood where we call home a destination for the entire world. By 2025, changemakers from all over the world will come right here to learn about the Obama's journey and engage in celebration in community spaces, marking Jackson Park as an incubator for hope. But more importantly, this project will be a vital resource for the people who live right here. We will be able to deepen our commitment to empowering Chicago's residents and allow them to showcase the rich talent and history and culture to visitors from nearby and far away. The OPC will be a place where folks can find work, where kids can learn and grow and envision bigger lives for themselves. A campus right here on the South Side where we hope to convene, support, and empower the next generation of leaders. We envision this as a place where residents and visitors from all over the world come together, 
and restore the promise of the People's Park. To me, this doesn't feel so much like building something new. It feels like we're helping to reveal what has always been here. And I could not be more excited to officially break ground and get us one step closer to making that vision a reality. Thank you very much. Now we're going to go grab some shovels and break some ground. That's it. Hey! Right. Thank you, everybody. So I'm going to uh, say to you, uh, Mark, this is interesting because uh, we jump from mental health in the RAF in just a few steps where RAF personnel are being encouraged to take an app, which is actually backed by people with vast amounts of money to make huge profits but ultimately it's about change, uh, future leaders and change agents. And where do we end up? We end up in Chicago with Obama. Uh, this seems to me to take us straight into Saul Alinsky territory. Oh, it certainly does. You know that where they're gonna build that's only about an hour's drive from where I'm sitting. That You've inspired me. I'm gonna have to take a buzz over there and maybe interview a few people and do an article. We'll see about that. But yeah, something I'm talking about today uh, a little bit later, and it, it doesn't hurt to talk about it now, is that in conjunction with the United We Stand Summit that Biden held September 15th, they've got something called Our Common Purpose, uh, cooked up by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and they're sounding many of the same themes, again, pushing many of the same buttons. Uh, this is a very universal thing among the communitarians, the globalists, the liberals, the social justice warriors and whatnot. Uh, it's this mind candy and some of it sounds okay. And maybe there are parts of it that are even agreeable to most people. We might not disagree with every strand of this thing, but again, the problem is always the context. Um, what it strikes me as is a broad effort to uh, homogenize people's thinking, uh, to actually narrow the range of acceptable thought and acceptable speech under the guise of, everybody's views are welcome. Everybody's welcome to participate. Oh, really? I'd like to see just how every, you know, just how welcome everyone would be if we brought up ideas in their free speech zone that they claim to inhabit, if we brought up ideas that are inimical or contrary to what they're pushing, just how open-minded and democratic are they really? And, and so that's the question to ask, and that's the things to look for. And again, if you dig deeper, if you get below the surface, you'll see the word hate. They're against hate, that all-encompassing boogeyman. They're against extremism. Oh, but they could never be guilty of extremism themselves. You know, they, they, they see themselves as anointed, self-anointed, and really beyond reproach. And that's the part, that's the underlying part that, that disturbs me and should disturb a lot of people. Okay, Mark, thank you for that. Well, of course, we, we have King Charles, who's been saying that... Uh, He's uh, calling on an army of um, the international bankers and globalists who control trillions of pounds. So they are the only people who can change the future of the world. Uh, just draw your attention to uh, this uh, um, little on-screen uh, video from Blackstone. So when we talk about these vast sums of money from the hedge fund, uh, funds and we find them alongside the, li the likes of uh, 
of change agents we know we're into a very powerful mix so encourage people to go and do your own research there with Blackstone but uh, just fascinating um, RAF is it functioning in a way that we would expect a military uh, organization to function or is something else taking place I rather think it's the latter and uh, Mark another big group that you stayed on the uh, the, the trail of is of course the Bilderberg group and uh, we thought they disappeared but they still seem to be active what what have you got here for us with Malcolm Turnbull well Malcolm Turnbull is not a household name among those you would call globalists but on September 15th happens to be the very night that Biden held his United We Stand summit no real significance there just the timing he spoke to the Economic Club of Southwest Michigan right here in my neck of the woods, and I landed some press creds and went down there. And I actually asked him a question under the rubric of UK Column. I mentioned UK Column just to put a little something in his craw. But this Malcolm Turnbull, who from 2015 to 2018 was Prime Minister of Australia, um, is quite the man. Like the headline indicates here, he's worn numerous hats, started out as a lawyer. I uh, couldn't get it all in the headline. He was a journalist a telecom uh, corporate raider, you might say, uh, creating monopolies, I'm told, by a contact of my own in Australia in the internet world, in terms of internet companies. And again, Australian prime minister, and now he's with the Kohlberg Kravis um, KKR firm, which has offices all over the world, Chicago, Houston, et cetera. And that firm is run by Henry Kravis, who's a longtime Bilderberg fixture, as I mentioned in this article at thetruthhound.com. But his wife, Marie, is not only co-chair of the Bilderberg Steering Committee, but she's president of the American Friends of Bilderberg, which finances and does the arrangements for the American contingent that goes to the annual or almost annual Bilderberg meetings uh, due to the COVID disruptions. They don't happen quite as frequent. But Malcolm Turnbull, um, is quite the mover and the shaker. And there's a lot of people out there like that that aren't household names, but are strong and persistent change agents. One of the things he said during this presentation at Lake Michigan College in Benton Harbor, Michigan, was that those that disbelieve in climate change are, are akin to those that disbelieve in gravity, which is quite a statement. And he didn't even make the distinction as I tried to point out, I, I could only get one question in. I wanted to ask him more, but he didn't even make the distinction that while many agree maybe that the climate is somehow changing, many see it as solar activity and other largely uncontrollable natural processes that are bringing about whatever variations there are in the climate. And so in a very oversimplistic, uh, crude sense. He just says, if you disbelieve in climate change, therefore you must not believe in gravity either. And then he passes himself off as a conservative. In the Liberal Party, that means conservative in Australia, more or less. He passed himself off as a center-right conservative. So I did get a, a chance to ask him a question. I said, Mark Anderson here for UKcolumn.org. I want the audience to hear that. So they stopped reading just the mainstream press, perhaps. But I said, how do you reconcile being a conservative with the fact by your own admission that you're pro-gun control, pro-gay marriage, and pro-abortion without limits? And he gave the most Harry Houdini answer you can possibly imagine. Uh, verbally, he twisted and turned until he got out of the water tank, you might say, until he got the chains off his hands. 
metaphorically speaking, but it took him about five minutes, maybe longer, to explain how a conservative can be so liberal. And so he he really had a lot of misrepresentation and absurd statements in in his presentation. But uh, he's he's one to watch. He's he's very very active in the pro-vax campaign, the pro-climate change. Uh, it has to be due to mankind's activities that we even have global warming. He's very active in all of that. And I think he has uh, more influence maybe than we realize. And there are others like him that they operate just below the surface that are very powerful change agents, which is a powerful theme or a, a dominant theme in today's UK column. So so Malcolm Turnbull, we haven't heard the last of him, but, but he certainly um, is a very wily, uh, worldly, change agent that, that I think we'll see much more from. Yeah, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, you've now got a, a, an excellent uh, segue, I think it's called, into uh, David Scott. And your headline here is demand for white supremacy from FBI headquarters vastly outstrips the supply of white supremacy. What is going on? Well, the United We Stand Summit um, basically centers on the theme that there's hate and extremism. And although they don't say it explicitly all the time, it it really boils down to the idea that the main domestic terrorist threat in the United States is not only white, but white supremacist. But as Gia Griffin's Need to Know News uh, site is pointing out, FBI agents have admitted that there's a vast shortage of actual white supremacy. It's largely just an invention, another specter of fear, as if we need more, right? And when you, when they say white supremacy, what they really mean is the basic European Western Christian model of civilization they see as outmoded, anachronistic, outdated, however you want to describe it. They want a different civilization other than the basic European Christendom, you might say. And so they're trying to, in a very Marxist fashion, agitate, exploit things like equity, as we're talking about, and create these largely false specters of fear and use that as leverage to enact the changes they want, uh, to try and control speech, to try and erect these Obama-related institutions, everything they can do to have societal control in the social sphere, just as they shoot for so much in the uh, information sphere through social media companies and the financial sphere through BlackRock and Vanguard and companies like that. It's total dominance. What, what's that old saying? Um, uh, total, total awareness. Uh, I forget the, the exact terminology, but full spectrum dominance. There it is. Okay. Um, although they try and soft pedal it and use soft power rather than hard power, ne nevertheless, it, I believe the evidence shows that that's what they're after. Uh, excellent, Mark. Thank you very much for that. So, David, uh, I think that's a good introduction to your next section. Yes, another little piece on the rabid dog that is uh, British academia. Uh, we have here um, a new book has been published: the Routledge Handbook of Critical Studies in Whiteness. Um, now this is uh, competitively priced at only £190 in hardback, and it's just out this year. It offers a unique decolonial take on the field of critical whiteness studies. 
uh, by rehistoricizing and respatializing the study of bodies and identities in the in the world system of coloniality. Now, I know you're thinking this is slightly strange language. It seems to look down on normal English because normal English has too few verbs and too few nouns. But there we go. The thing to notice here is of all the people this book is meant for, it's meant for many people, the first one is people in fields of education. So this is going to get into the schools because this is going to get into the training of teachers. Um, the uh, people who um, edited this are Shona Hunter uh, from Leeds Beckett University and Christy van der Westhuizen, uh, from the um, Nelson Mandela University. And if you're thinking that these people are a wee bit um, peely-wally, it's a Scots term meaning pale and porcelain-like, uh, you'd be right. But that doesn't mean that they're not very, very upset about whiteness. Um, so we've got some more here on Shona Hunter, just to have a look at her. Um, uh, she's a, a, a reader in race education, um, and de-coloniality uh, 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 at Leeds Beckett University. Uh, she says uh, that I'm a big, critical, innovative, multi-dimensional thinker working internationally and across disciplines in this area of power. Again, it's all about power. And doesn't she think well of herself? Um, now, she has written a book. She's not just edited a book, she's written a book. It's called... Power, Politics and Emotions in Possible Governments. Firstly, uh, gentlemen, I'd like your comments on the cover because that pencil to me looks like a bullet coming out of someone's skull with bits of brain uh, scattering over the page. Is that how you read that? Yes. Yeah, uh, and of course we have one very dark eye and it's a very sinister image. And that was deliberately chosen. Absolutely. Um, so I haven't read the whole book. I have I have looked at uh, chapter one, governing subjects of oppression and equality. Um, and wouldn't you know that right at the start, she quotes Tony Blair. And if people can stand it, I think this is from 1997. It's just interesting, though, with a little bit of experience and a bit of water under the bridge, just to look back on this. What Tony said, On May the 1st, the people entrusted me with the task of leading their country into a new century. That was your challenge to me, proudly, humbly, I accepted it. Today I issue a challenge to you, help us make Britain that beacon shining throughout the world. Unite behind our mission to modernise our country. Uh, there's a place for all the people in New Britain, capitalised. Uh, and there's a role for all the people in its creation. Uh, believe in us as much as we believe in you. Give, me as, uh, give just as much to our country as we intend to give. Give your all. Make this the giving age. Quote, and he's quoting here from Clause 4 of the Labour Party Constitution. By the strength of our common endeavour, we achieve more together than we can alone. On May the 1st, 1997, it wasn't just the Tories who were defeated. Cynicism was defeated. Fear of change was defeated. Fear itself was defeated. Did I not say it would be a battle of hope against fear? On May 1997, fear lost, hope won, the giving age began. Just before we move on, can I have your reaction, gentlemen? Uh, sorry, David, you can't because I'm too busy uh, being sick in a bucket. <laughs> uh, yep, tr truly horrific. I, I will have to repeat my story, which I've now done several times, but I always remember it very 
fondly of meeting a neighbor who had uh, spent all his working life on a farm. When I asked him about Tony Blair, the new prime minister, he said to me, he's a badon. And I said, what makes you think that? And he said, I've worked with farm animals all my life and you can always tell a dangerous one by its eyes. So um, that's my comment. Okay, well, I thought they thought about, you know, fear itself was defeated. Well, fear made a comeback recently, I would have to yeah. say. Now, uh, the, the whole bit, I was struck though by this whole, uh, by the strength of our common endeavour, we achieve more together than we can alone, which is from the Labour Party uh, replacement to Clause 4. I thought, well, that, that rings a bell. So I went looking for it, and here's the new inquiry describing something very similar. Uh, strength through unity. Um, the keystone of the fascist doctrine is its conception of the state, or of its essence, its functions, and its aims. For fascism, the state is absolute, individual and groups relative. Individual and groups are admissible insofar as they come within the state. Instead of directing the game and guiding the material and moral progress of the community, the liberal state res restricts its activities to recording results. The fascist, the fascist state is wide awake and has a will of its own, and he continued, and that makes it moral. Um, or was it uh, ethical? I think it was ethical is the word to use. This is Benito Mussolini speaking in 1932. And I say just in the passing, new labour was fascism. The whole thing about the third way, we're not, we're not capitalism, we're not communism, we're a third way. Yes, the third way always was fascism, and that's what they were, and it's very plain. Um, getting back, though, to uh, Shona, um, she's got a website, and it's called white spaces, it's all about race, and it's it's a collaboration against whiteness. Uh, white spaces collaborates on a range of projects with organizations, networks, and groups, and individuals who are working to shift understanding and practices of global colonial power from within a relational ethos. It goes on with many words. So how are they doing this? Well, they are refusing the colonial black-white binary. This requires collaborative, collaborative working across binary, binary racialized positionalities, the English is horrendous, to disrupt oversimplified understandings of people's positioning within racism and anti-racism as either good or bad, vulnerable or empowered, resistor or dominator. Working across these binaries is a way of refusing these simplifications in practice by privileging complex lived interpretations and practices of coalition in anti-racist resistance. This sounds like word soup, but actually when you analyse it, we don't have time to go into it in detail just now, but there's a lot of grabbing of power and there's a lot of removing of your right to say, no, I don't agree with this. Uh, David, sorry, refusing... I just, uh, sorry, David, I just want to interrupt there for a second because that language, yeah. if I just put that back on screen for a second, that language uh, positioning people's positioning within racism and anti-racism as either good or bad, vulnerable or empowered, a resistor or a dominator, and they're talking about binaries. This is exactly the language that Nick Carter was using uh, whenever he was uh, chief of the defence staff, talking about a war and peace no longer being a binary, yeah. a binary thing. It's it, it's a spectrum thing. This is this is hybrid warfare we're talking about here. That's a very good point, Mike. It's hybrid warfare on our minds, our children and our institutions. Um, she also refuses the colonial space-time binary. This requires different ways think of thinking about time and space as interconnected and intersectional with what is understood to be past is also understood to be present. And what is seen to be over there 
is also seen to be in here. Now, on one level, that's very funny, but if you thought that, that space and time actually understood the bike, that's because you're a racist. <laughs> and um, they also refuse the mind-body binary, and they also refuse the individual and institution binary. Right? So this one's quite sneaky. It requires a different way of thinking about the relationship between the systemic politics of whiteness um, and individual practices of power. The aim is to challenge the institutionalization of blame for racism onto individuals and groups of people racialized as white as a systemic strategy of whiteness, which avoids responsibility for racist reproduction. So if you point to someone and say, he's being racist, I don't approve of that. That's racist, Mike. Um, it's, there's, no, there's no escaping whiteness. Um, back very quickly, new discourses cover um, some of the some of the the word plays. You see, one of the difficulties here is these people use they use your vocabulary, but they don't use your dictionary, right? Mm -hmm. So the words have different meanings. So you've got to actually check what they mean. Critical race theory, right? Un unlike traditional civil rights discourse, which stresses incrementalism and step by step progress, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal order including equality theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of, of constitutional law. That's what it means. It doesn't mean anything like critical thinking. It means destroying the entire society to, so that something else can emerge in its place. Um, and on whiteness studies, um, it's all about... Oh, I've actually, I've had enough. You can read that one for yourself. There's more... There's more changing of, um, of meanings and deception, essentially to hide a religion, right? This is a strange Marxist-based religion, and it has, um, uh, like, like religions, it, it encompasses the whole of thought. It's an entire worldview, an entire way of looking at things, and it's being put forward principally via the education establishment, Hence, it's coming into our schools and it will be taught to our children. It's there to divide. It's there to encourage them to view themselves as victims or as perpetrators. It's to divide our people and, it's, and it is wholly negative. And it is, and they, they actually describe this themselves, virus-like, in that once they take over one institution, people leave that institution and they carry the virus of these ideas with them into other institutions. And it's not just ideas, it's all about practice. Praxis, as they say. It's all about actually putting into effect uh, policies, um, teaching methods to change society. And it's lifelong and it is a very dangerous ideology. And it gives a big clue as to why we are seeing so many institutions in this country behaving in ways which are the very opposite of what's in, in the best interest of either themselves or certainly of the people they are meant to serve. Common yeah. purpose again. Well, it, it is a common purpose agenda, essentially. But if uh, viewers, listeners are not aware of Saul Alinsky and his book, Rules for Radicals, have a look at that, because that was the textbook for getting in and destroying society. Um, now, let's uh, move back to the UK again and uh, to Leicester. And many people will have uh, uh, be aware of this, uh, but Leicester Media was pushing this out yesterday. Forest Road is completely 
closed due to the ongoing unrest in Leicester tonight. So 15 people were arrested. Uh, Leicestershire police said officers became aware of groups of young men gathering on Sunday afternoon in the North Evington area of the city. Officers spoke to them and took steps, including putting in place a temporary police cordon to minimize harm and disturbance uh, to communities. Uh, the, the police also said that the 15 remained in custody uh, and uh, they said that large crowds had turned, uh, had formed when groups of young men gathered for unplanned protest. Well, the best uh, sort of coverage of the background for this that I'd seen uh, was from The Spectator. Uh, why is violence uh, breaking out in Leicester? So let's just uh, bring this on screen. Uh, they're saying the trouble began at the end of August when on a cricket field thousands of miles away in Dubai, England defeated Pakistan by five wickets in an Asia Cup match. After the game, large crowds of young men draped in Indian flags began celebrating on Melton Road in Leicester. The celebration soon turned nasty with fights breaking out and one man arrested on suspicion of assaulting an emergency worker. Uh, videos of celebration show Indian supporters appearing to count, uh, to chant uh, a partition era, era slogan, which can be roughly translated as death to Pakistan. Now, both sides of this, uh, the, the uh, Muslim and uh, uh, Hindu uh, communities are blaming each other for it. But the, uh, it seems to be that it was the case that the, the initial chanting and the initial uh, incitement began with the uh, Hindu community. Um, and uh, so this has been going on more or less since that uh, cricket match on the 28th of August. Um, in a statement, the leaders of the Hindu and Jain temples uh, said that we condemn the insensitive and utterly disgraceful acts on the streets of Belgrave and uh, North Evington. Leaders of the Hindu community are not going to tolerate such acts of aggression uh, that undermines the relationships and unity within the city of Leicester. And on the Muslim side, they said, well, basically the police weren't protecting us, so we're going to take matters into our own hands. Um, so, David, uh, we're running out of time, but very briefly, interested to get your thoughts on this. But I'm hearing uh, that this is happening in other towns as well. It's, it's extremely concerning. I mean, we've got here um, essentially something verging on warfare between two sides, and you've got you've got a police force talking about our communities, they're not talking about our community anymore. They're not even pretending that they have a community. They've got multiple communities at one another's throats, it would seem, at least for the present. Uh, this is multiculturalism. This was, of course, the plan. Yes. Okay, uh, let's move over to the question of journalism. And I, I saw this article in the mail, which uh, raised some questions for me. So this is from Alex Brummer, and his uh, headline is, Investigative journalism is a public good. It is often an unequal fight when big corporations are involved but don't give up. Uh, and what he's saying here is, The latest economist parodies UK titles for Bra Pravda journalism in coverage of Queen Elizabeth II's death, a fuller reading uh, reveals acres of material ranging from royal complicity and colonialism to criticism that royal, uh, of that royal miscreant, the Duke of York. Well, uh, perhaps it has been there, but as a proportion of the overall content, it's been a very small proportion of the overall content. And so it's hardly surprising that, uh, although I'm not going to defend The Economist in any way, but it's hardly surprising that there's been some criticism of the coverage. Anyway, he goes on to say, investigative and campaigning journalism is a public good. And I absolutely agree with that sentiment. It is a public good, but we're not saying it. Anyway, he goes on in his article to see 
the powerful role which financial journalism can and does play in cleaning up business is central to the documentary Scandal, uh, bringing down Wirecard, released by Netflix. The film tells the story of how insidious Financial Times journalism, backed by a determined editor, Lionel Barber, uh, brought the fraudsters at fintech pioneer Wirecard crashing down and embarrassed uh, German authorities. It also demonstrated how easily serious investors, auditors and markets can be bamboozled if they don't want to believe something. And I'm not going to I'm going to say that there is a good investigative journalism out there still, uh, but it's mainly focused on this type of uh, thing on financial crime, corporate crime and so on. Where we're not getting any real investigative journalism in the mainstream press is with respect to geopolitics or the activities of governments and so on. And we've covered why that is in the past. But part of the problem here, of course, is that we now have an entire infrastructure built up to make sure that uh, the uh, narrative in the mainstream press and in the, in the, on the Internet and so on is kept uh, in line. And so I just want to mention this. Um, because uh, European fact-checking organizations have now approved a code of professional standards to combat misinformation. Uh, and this is from this organization, uh, the European Fact-Checking Standards Network. So let's have a look at the report itself. Uh, this is the European Code of Standards for Independent Fact-Checking Organizations. And uh, here's one of the things it says. The European Code of Standards for Independent Fact-Checking Organizations is a set of criteria designed to ensure that Organizations fact-checking mis- and disinformation adhere to the highest standards of methodology, ethics, and transparency in order to best serve the public interest. That should make you feel absolutely great, Brian. Yeah, they'll be independent, Mike. Absolutely. So uh, the fact the European Code of Standards and the EFCSN are open to organizations dedicated to fact-checking, defined as the use of evidence-based methods to verify the accuracy of claims made in the public space. Organizations must have a substantial and demonstrable focus on a country that is a member of the Council of Europe, Kosovo and Belarus to apply. So keep that in mind for a second when we look at who some of the members are, Council of Europe, Kosovo uh, and Belarus. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, evidence-based method. Well, what is the evidence that we see in most fact-checking reports? The evidence is the regurgitation of official government statements. That's the evidence that we actually see in fact-checking reports. And there's nothing in this standard from this organization which rules that out. Uh, it goes on to say, uh, provide evidence, so they're required to provide evidence for every pertinent factual statement made in an investigation relying on primary sources. Well, when the primary sources that they rely on are the government, then we don't actually get any, any proper fact checking at all. Provide at least two, though preferably more sources to verify the central claim of investigation, ex uh, except in cases where there's only a single relevant source, like the government, for example. Again, none of this rules out uh, relying on the government as the source of information uh, as or as a primary source. So let's just uh, have a look and see who the key players are in this. Here's the working committee members. And who do you see on there, Brian, that absolutely jumps out at you straight away? Well, certainly a little organisation called Full Fact Yes, up pretty quickly. So there are two organisations from the United Kingdom on this, uh, on this uh, even though it's an EU thing. Uh, so Full Fact is one and uh, Logically is the other. And, uh, you know, when we look at the Full Fact uh, website, what do we find? Well, we find them campaigning for the government to uh, ensure that the online safety bill protects citizens from harm. Uh, so there we go. Uh, investigative journalist uh, journalism should be a thing. I'm not uh, questioning that at all. I'm absolutely questioning whether it exists anymore in this country in any real sense. 
because the mainstream media outlets are completely owned and controlled by the government uh, and the fact-checking organizations? Uh, what can I say? It's uh, pretty obvious what's happening here. Yes. And we're going to do our best to get the information out there because otherwise who reports what's actually happening? Indeed. Uh, okay, just a quick reminder, if you like what the UK column does and you'd like to support us, uh, then please head to community.ukcolumn.org and there are options for, us to, for you to join us there. And you'd be very welcome. Uh, or pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but please do share uh, material on the various platforms. Where does that take us? Well, of course, when you asked the question, I was checking my facts, Mike, because uh, we want to uh, just pop up on screen that uh, this is uh, Mark Anderson's latest article is now on the uh, front page of the UK column. Apologies there, Mark, because I realised that I chopped the header off slightly. So just very quickly, tell us what this article's about. Well, it's a long and broad one to wind up my red pill coverage from mid-July in Indianapolis, Indiana, the Red Pill Expo. It mentions also that they're having another one, I think they have twice a year, in Utah uh, in mid-November. And I hope to possibly attend that, maybe even participate as a speaker. I don't know yet. It's too hard to, excuse me, it's too soon to know. I will mention that at the end of that article, um, the Freedom Force International and Red Pill University that puts on the Red Pill Expo says this about unity and all that. And this provides a counterpoint to all this doublespeak that we're hearing. To achieve all we want to do requires diversity without conflict, power without coercion, and unity without conformity. See, so there's nothing really wrong with unity in and of itself or diversity but these are misconstrued and completely maligned and completely overturned by the people and forces we've been discussing today. So the people that put on Red Pill have a much more logical and rational view of diversity, unity, and things like that. And I think that's a, an important takeaway from that article. That's toward the end of the article, which covers all the other speakers that weren't covered in the first two installments from that expo. So I appreciate you showing that, thanks. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Uh, okay. Just uh, wanted to mention this, <laughs> Brian. Uh, and that was uh, that uh, last week, if you looked at the uh, Royal Family's uh, Twitter uh, feed, there was, you know, if we're talking about whether there are political statements being made by the Royal Family or not, this was the only uh, comment with respect to the book of condolence, uh, the various books of condolence that are out there from various countries. Uh, they decided to, to retweet this one. The Foreign and Commonwealth Office have been, re have been tweeting and retweeting a whole range of different uh, world leaders and, and uh, different countries, but the royal family chose Zelensky as the one, and that seemed like a political statement to me. Well, it's absolutely a political statement, and of course the royal family are going to continue to push out a political statement with, with regards to Ukraine. As a very quick update, and as always, we're going to thank other people who are doing a lot of very good research work to bring out the facts to a worldwide audience. So today I've chosen the Military Summary Channel. Um, and uh, this is a couple of screenshots. Encourage you to go to YouTube and actually listen, watch and listen the full video. Uh, but if we just have a look at a couple of places on the uh, front, this is Mikolaev front. Uh, this is where uh, the uh, Ukrainians were going to have this huge um, attack uh, offensive towards Kyrgyzstan. 
in the event, uh, the thing simply did not get going and uh, the offensive was crushed with very heavy losses. So this part of the front, at least, um, nothing much happening in the uh, lowest southwestern area. Uh, but if we move up to the circled area, uh, this is where Russian forces crossed the Ingulates River and made an incursion into Russian-held territory. The Russians blew a dam and Krivoy Rog, flooded the river, uh, caused quite a lot of disturbance to the Ukrainian supply lines and the reinforcement routes. And it would appear at the moment that the Russians are simply hammering the Ukrainian forces that are now on the uh, Russian uh, side of the river with artillery. And uh, the reports of casualties are truly horrific. I'll come on to those a bit later. But if we move along the front, um, Zaporozhnia, uh, we've got some uh, exchanges of artillery, very heavy strikes by the Russian, including Russian Air Force, uh, some counter battery fire into Russian held territory. Uh, but generally, the, the bulk of the uh, fighting is round into the uh, Donbass area, and in particular where the Russians are fighting very hard with their Ukrainian allies to take territory west of Donetsk. And this is to try and take pressure off the city because the Ukrainians are once again specifically shelling civilian areas of Donetsk, and the Russian response is extremely hard. So it does appear that uh, over the last week in particular, the Russian stances has uh, firmed up and they are bringing more and more weapon systems to bear with uh, the result, the Ukrainian casualties increase. So if we have a look at this overview screenshot, you can see the little orange flashes, which are where uh, they, there's either been extremely heavy strikes or there is quite a lot of uh, fighting on the front. And I'll include this one because a uh, report here from one blogger um, showing damage to the um, administration centre in the Kyrgyzstan region. And of course, these are all Ukraine HIMARS attacks. Well, they're not because uh, this is courtesy of the US. And uh, this is something which I find despicable that uh, we have the US, UK and EU sitting in the background, supplying the weapons, helping the targeting, and those weapons are clearly being used to uh, target civilian uh, infrastructure, which is largely um, at peace. So uh, overall, what can we say? Uh, many of the reports online are that in the last two months, Ukrainian casualties as high as 52,000 men killed and wounded. And uh, we've also got the other bizarre story that America is now so short of um, military production capacity that they're offering Ukraine 12,155 millimeter shells per month when the uh, um, expenditure of that sort of uh, ammunition is is probably nearer the three, four thousand shells a day. So we're now witnessing that America's incapable of producing ammunition. Uh, but the real tragedy is the deaths because the Ukrainians are continuing relatively small scale attacks along the front. And each time they do it, they are losing six, seven, eight or nine tanks, armored personnel carriers. And we are seeing men killed in increasing numbers. So it's not uncommon now in, in a day for 500 Ukrainians to be killed. 
and this is all courtesy of the Western um, weapon systems being pushed into the country. Mm. Uh, does that take us back to Mark? It, it does, because uh, I've, I've mentioned, obviously, uh, the US involvement, and I think President Biden here, United We Stand, was a bit too much to take, really. <laughs> yeah, uh, more mental warfare. As we've always said, uh, war is always psychological and informational. Um, fighting and violence and weapons and all that is a secondary thing. And this United We Stand, when we have a porous southern border along the Texas uh, line and Arizona, New Mexico, and California, this United We Stand thing is particularly diversionary in that sense. We've got some real problems that affect everybody. The fentanyl drugs coming in, the criminal gangs, MS-13 and uh, drug cartel scouts who enlist younger people to do some of their uh, scouting and miscellaneous work, as I've mentioned on UK column before. We've got real problems, but Biden says that the main problem is hate and specifically white hate, AKA white supremacy. And that's what the United We Stand Summit, September 15, which I mentioned earlier today, was about. And get this, you know, you'd almost want to think that it had some merit. And yet those backing it include the Democracy Fund, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Kettering MacArthur Foundations, Open Society, George Soros, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, Silicon Valley Community Foundation, W.K. Kellogg Foundation, that originated in Michigan, I believe here, and, and so on and so forth. And 140 mayors have signed a new mayor's compact to combat hate and extremism hate-fueled violence, things like that. And so once again, a particular segment of society, uh, white everyday people are being looked at as that, that segment that is most likely to commit some sort of um, hateful crime, most likely involving some kind of violence. And they've got something called the new pluralists, get that, a cross, a cross ideological group of philanthropists, social change makers, local leaders, more along the lines of what we've been discussing during the entire broadcast today. But just to jump ahead a little bit, um, you guys talked about the uh, um, initiatives there and YouTube is expanding its policies to combat violent extremism. This was also at the United We Stand Summit. It was a very long summit and there's uh, just um, reams of literature that I could have printed out. I printed out only a small part that I could make sense of. Uh, there's something called Twitch, which will accelerate its ongoing commitment to deterring hate in live streaming. Microsoft is expanding its application of violence detection and prevention via artificial intelligence, machine learning tools, using gaming even to build empathy. There's another buzzword in young people. And Meta is forging a new research partnership with the Middlebury Institute, which might be Vermont, of International Studies Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism. And yet we heard earlier that some FBI agents say there's a shortage of what actual white extremism or white supremacy, even though there's a high demand among the Biden-led Justice Department and in so many private and public sectors. Yeah, uh, the problem, the problem is, Mark, sorry, uh, sorry to interrupt. The problem there, Mark, is that, of course, 
the language of, of hate and extremism and so on and white supremacy is being used to cover what's really going on, which is this notion of information terrorism. And we've started seeing this this term being used openly now, this term of information terrorism. This is this is what David Cameron was talking about in 2014 when he was talking about uh, censoring the internet because of the violent extremism that is on the internet, but they never dealt with and they never wanted to deal with Islamic violent extremism that was coming out of ISIS or Al-Qaeda or any of these organizations in the Middle East. What they're really aiming to do here is to deal with the information terrorism, which is counter than the official narrative. Oh, absolutely. And, and ISIS uh, outfits like that, of course, were largely intelligence creations or at least intelligence infiltrated creations. Uh, at any rate, oh, that's absolutely it. They're sandbagging and doing everything, everything they can because we can take heart a little bit. They wouldn't be this intent on controlling information unless they were afraid of losing the narrative. And they wouldn't be so uh, intent on manipulating public opinion if they weren't afraid of informed public opinion. Yes. See, so we, there's some heart that we can take in this. They are really, really dropping the info bombs and whatnot, metaphorically speaking, because they're afraid of losing that narrative. The mainstream media, the mass media cartel, as I call it, is losing readers and viewers and subscriptions every day, while those like us, however slowly or incrementally, are growing and sometimes not so slowly. And information is everything. We know that once it reaches a certain threshold and they lose grip of that narrative, it could be all over. And they're well aware of that. And that would explain at least some of their um, antagonism. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Uh, and then David, just to finish off here, we've got uh, a tweet from, from the wonderful Devi Sridhar. Um, well, I'll leave you to comment on this. <laughs> Well, Debbie, Debbie had a problem. She tweeted, I'm having vaccine envy. Right? She's looking in the United States, and this is a tweet from the Surgeon General of the United States. So Debbie has vaccine envy. How lucky. Right? How lucky to be an alpha. No, that's not what she says. How lucky to have access to an updated booster and flu shot together. The best way to protect yourself from severe illness from COVID-19 is to be vaccinated and boosted. And that's what she tweeted. Um... And of course, there were replies. There were quite a lot of replies. I've got some here. I wonder if she reads them. Uh, Anne uh, W. Bell uh, replied, my son died 10 days after his first AstraZeneca jab. Please bear a loss in mind when you make tweets like this. You are very lucky not to have suffered as my family have. Jess Wells said, shameful tweet. My kid's dad is dead after his second. My mum is on palliative care after a heart attack a month ago. My dad had two clots. Um, uh, uh, Susie Copsey tweets, um, my brother doesn't feel so lucky. And uh, there's a shot of dad of two, age 42, trapped in his own body after an extreme reaction to the vaccine. Uh, we've got uh, Dom Free uh, retweeting here. Um, uh, a, a tweet that says, I took the, vi the Pfizer booster vaccine November 19th, 2021, nearly 10 months of hell. Business cardiovascular issues, fatigue, weakness, no help from the government, no help from the NHS. I am not misinformation. Tatiana McLeod said, it's, it wasn't good for my, uh, not for my late auntie, it wasn't. The COVID booster ended her life. You ought to be ashamed recommending that poison. And uh, Ward replies, how lucky you are to have one of 
to have had the vaccine and not suffered any long-term effects. It can happen to anyone as it did to my husband. Died 23-321, confirmed by cord and the complications of a medical vaccine, that being AstraZeneca. So um, this shows you that the situation has now got so severe that every time the state uh, via Devi Sridhar, a friend of, friend of uh, the uh, Clinton Foundation, Chelsea Clinton and um, Bill and Melinda Gates, tries to put out propaganda, the, the pushback from those actually harmed, speaking about their experiences, um, speaking from terribly hard-won knowledge, um, is, is overwhelming. Um, so this is another example of the, the narrative not being capable of being held um, by the state anymore. Uh, they cannot cover this up. There are simply too many people speaking out and too much harm has been done. Yes. Okay. Well, look, David, we're out of time. So let's just end with a couple of uh, uh, final slides here. Uh, first of all, we've got uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky. If we're still allowed to quote Russians, um, he's, uh, he said that uh, tolerance will reach such a level that intelligent people will be banned from thinking so as, to not, so as not to offend the imbeciles. I thought that was quite good, given the whiteness studies, critical whiteness studies we've been covering. And uh, we haven't had a chance to talk much about the economy. We will come back to this, but I thought this cartoon, um, as the Fed uh, jacks up interest rates and just sing a little higher, and the Wall Street bear is just about to strike. I thought that was very good indeed. Yes, indeed. Okay. Thanks, David. Is that the Wall Street bear or is that the Russian bear? Oh. Isn't it the Russian bear that's causing a few problems for Wall it's, Street? It's that that one's got Wall Street tattooed on its on its on its backside. So I think that's the Wall Street bear. That's the bear market, Brian. <laughs> okay, thank you for that. Well, that brings us to the end of today's news. So, David and Mark, thank you very much for joining us. We've got an extra time yes. coming up in a few minutes. But as always, a very big thank you to all our viewers and listeners and supporters wherever you are in the world. Um, we hope the information that we're putting out is spread by your good selves. So please share it far and wide. It's why we do what we do. And of course, we can only do this with your financial help and support. So thank you very much to everybody who's taken out a membership or is donating to the UK column. Um, what are we going to do with this support? We're going to expand. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.